Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of your mom's podcast. My name is Luna. Today, I'm going to be talking about a couple of serious things. But before I get to that, I hope everyone is having a great weekend. I know we're getting some snow here. Good time to just stay home and relax, not go out in this mess because it's sloppy and disgusting. It's not even good snow right now. Um, my son is a little too young to go out and enjoy it. So we're just at home relaxing and I'm watching him grow. Uh, he'll be a year old soon and I can't believe how fast time is going by. I wish it could slow down, <laughs> but I'm trying to soak up the last little bit of him officially being a baby because I guess he'll be a toddler in April when he when he has his birthday and I'm also trying to have a, a little more positive outlook um, with sleep issues because he is like I said he's been teething for a while obviously he, he will be teething a, a lot longer he's got several more teeth coming in and he's pretty miserable around bedtime and he's not sleeping that great he's still sleeping on me for the most part When he wakes up, which the last couple of days he's woken up quite frequently, instead of getting frustrated and being mad that I'm not sleeping, I'm trying to remind myself that that's an opportunity for me to have more cuddles with him, uh, more time with him as a baby. So trying to stay positive, I tend to not be a super positive person. I'm not really an optimist, but I'm trying to be a little better about it. So I'm getting there. Anyway. The first thing, like I said, I'm going to talk about a couple of serious things. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is eating disorders. Now, the reason I'm talking about them is because I, I have personal experience, but also I think as parents, it's really important to kind of understand different things about eating disorders, kind of know what signs to look for. Because unfortunately, it's a very common issue that goes unnoticed until it's too late. And it's very common in boys and girls. It's not just a girl problem. I think a lot of people don't think about boys when they think of eating disorders. Because typically, uh, as far as most people believe, you know, girls are the ones that worry about their body the most. They want to be skinny. They're told from a very early age that thin is beautiful. Now, things are changing now. People are more body positive. Um, And, you know, every body type, I feel like, is is great. Now, the only thing I'm going to say is you should never hate your body, but you should always strive to be healthy. So... Now, if somebody is like 300 pounds, I'm not going to be like, yay, you be yourself. Doesn't mean you're a bad person and doesn't mean you're not beautiful. But the thing is, is it's dangerous to be, you know, 50, 100, 200, 300 plus pounds overweight. It's just not good. I'm not going to sit there and, and, and shame somebody. But people do need to know that it's just dangerous, right? It's dangerous. And not only will you shorten your life, but the people that love you are going to miss out on having you around. And it's just it's just not good. So healthy is the important thing. You don't have to be 100 pounds. You don't have to be this little stick figure Barbie to be healthy. And to be honest, a lot of people that are skinny are still unhealthy because just just because you're skinny doesn't mean you're eating right or exercising, right? Uh, I had a friend that she called herself skinny fat because she was... She was really thin, but she was kind of pretty kind of flabby. She's trying to tone up and everything, but she wasn't um, 
she didn't feel healthy and she actually had high cholesterol, high blood pressure. But you don't think of those kind of problems with people that are thin because you just look at them and you think that they're healthy or a lot of people perceive it that way. Right. So just because someone's bigger doesn't mean that they're more unhealthy. I've seen people that were not super obese, but they were bigger than they wanted to be. You know, they were a little overweight, but they actually were very healthy. They um, they exercise. Now, some people have some disorders that keep them from losing the weight they want to lose. And that's something else to consider. So you never really know what's going on in someone's life. There are people that don't try to lose weight and are very unhealthy and they just eat everything in the world that's bad for them, including like fast food every day, multiple times a day. But then you have people that have trouble losing weight that really work at it. So you never really know what's going on. And when I was younger, I was pretty skinny as a kid. Like I, I never, oh, I was never overweight. I didn't have trouble losing weight. And I really didn't think about losing weight because I was, I was thin. I was running track. I played volleyball. I was pretty athletic and I used to skate as well. Skateboard. Uh, I never really had an issue with my weight. The thing is, the reason why I think I developed an eating disorder is the other topic that I'm going to be discussing, which is abuse. And it's a hard one to talk about. I'm okay talking about it because it was so long ago. I've made my peace with it almost completely. And so I can talk about it without really getting upset and, and, you know, being triggered. I hate the word triggered, but, but I do want to tell people that are listening to this right now that if you do have a history of eating disorders, if you have a history of abuse, um, sexual, emotional, verbal, whatever, um, physical, any kind of abuse, and you feel like you can't listen to this episode, I'm going to tell you now that I am going to talk about my personal accounts and then I'm going to give out some uh, statistics So if you think that this is going to, the word I hate, trigger you uh, in any way, I don't want you to listen because I don't want to bring up painful memories for anyone. But if you're in a good place with it, if you've made peace with it or you're working on it or you've never had any issues, continue listening. I hope that you learned something. Um, I want to say enjoy. (laughs) This sounds like the wrong word, but I think that being educated can be enjoyable, right? No matter what the topic. So I'll start with when I was young. Like I said, I was skinny, so I was never teased. I never was bullied about my weight, even though skinny people do get bullied sometimes. I actually, I was, I was really healthy. Um, I was on the verge of being a little too skinny, but that's just me, right? That was just me when I was little. I was one of those kids that could eat anything and never gain weight. But I had some issues with my father And I'm not going to go into like specifics, but it was sexual in nature as well as physical. And I hit it very well. I didn't discuss it with my mother until I was in my early 30s. Whether she knew anything or not, I will never know. She says that she had no idea. And I want to believe that because I don't want to be angry at her for not doing something if she knew. Maybe she didn't know. I think people can have blinders on. I think uh, sometimes people that are being abused hide it so well that even their parents do not know. 
I would like to think that if something was happening to my son, that even if he told me everything was fine, that I would just feel it, right? That I would just know and do something about it. But I haven't been in that situation. And I hope I never am in that situation because nobody should be. So the things with my father kind of, it started around when I was about four years old and continued on until I was almost 12. And I started hating my body because I felt like, like when I started getting older, I hate, I hated my body because I kind of blamed myself that I brought attention on myself. And so when I started going, uh, when I started my period and I started filling out a little bit, I was ashamed because I didn't want more attention. The last thing I wanted was more attention. So I tried to essentially look like a child I wanted to, to be like asexual. So I started little by little, I would, I would skip a meal here and there. And if I had any food that I took to school with me, I would just kind of like throw in the trash. Right. So I'd leave the house with it, throw it in the trash. And then eventually I would be like, well, I'm buying my lunch. And I just, I wouldn't, I'd either wouldn't go get it or I would get it and kind of sit there and pick at it and push food around on the tray so people aren't, you know, suspecting anything. And then lunchtime would be over and I'd be like, oh, uh, I'm full or, you know, I got to go back to class. So I would throw the, my, the, my food in the trash. Nobody really said anything to me, whether they noticed or not. Nobody ever said anything to me. They were never like, oh, why aren't you eating? Um, you, you know, you notice that you're, you're kind of just stalling and pushing food around, not really putting it in your mouth. Nobody ever said anything. So I don't know if they noticed or if they just felt like it wasn't their place or they didn't care. Who knows? Right. But I started losing a little bit of weight and I felt good. So let me just point out that I was only about 105 pounds and the eating disorder didn't start when I was four. Now, the abuse with my dad was when I was four. But the the eating disorder disorder started when I was about 12, when I started my period, like I said, and I started developing a little bit. I wasn't ready for that. I was not ready for that. So I was about 105 pounds and I dropped five pounds. No big deal, right? And then I remember feeling so good about it that, you know, I would go to practice. I ran track. I'd go to practice on an empty stomach, just drinking water. And luckily, you know, I didn't pass out or anything because I was, this is in Texas, right? In San Antonio. So I'm running in like hundred degree heat on an empty stomach and I managed to do it. Uh, I managed to win races, come in first. I was doing great. My schoolwork wasn't suffering yet. That came later. And I was maintaining my friendships and just totally living a lie and getting away with it. And I thought it was great, right? Dropped down to about 95. I wore a lot of baggy clothing. So I think people just didn't really notice. And then eventually I got down to 90 and then I got down to 85. Well, when that happened, uh, people noticed and... My mom, she noticed. She came into my room one time uh, and I was changing my clothes. She was bringing in laundry and her jaw dropped, right? She was shocked. And, you know, 
because when you're already small and then 80 85 pounds is, is really skinny now I was not the skinniest by any means I saw girls that were less than that and that's terrifying because no full-grown person should be that little so it just came to a head there then and there it was not a good experience she was so upset uh, and I did see therapists I did um, go into treatment and it wasn't for very long because you kind of learn that if you comply and you do you, you know you do everything that they want you to do you learn what you need to do to get out of there then you go right you gain some weight back you express a healthy attitude toward food and then you're cured, right? You're good. They they don't have to worry about you anymore. Well, not so. <laughs> and I remember talking to one therapist in particular who was a man, and I'm not saying that male therapists don't know what they're talking about, but this particular one, he straight up looked at me and was like, why don't you just eat? Now, that is the dumbest question you can ask somebody with an eating disorder why don't you just eat? Like, I didn't think about that. Like, I didn't think, oh, if I want to get well, I should put food in my mouth. Of course. I didn't want to eat. That was the problem. And so uh, I never talked to him again, obviously. And I had some nice words for him, which he wasn't very happy about, especially coming from a teenager. And that was the end of that. And then I kind of, then from that point on, I just full on lied about everything, right? And I even, I didn't want to lose more weight because it would be obvious. So then I focused on maintaining my weight. Now what that involved was purging. So, which is vomiting, self-induced vomiting. Not a pretty thing. Um, And like I said, at any point, if you're listening to this and you hear something you don't like, tune out. And it's fine because this is not an easy thing to talk about. It's not an easy thing to hear, especially if you've been through it and you have not dealt with it. So I just, again, want to tell people if it's too much, please don't listen. I don't want to be responsible for you relapsing or having your own memories come back and and to haunt you and and, uh, set you off. So anyway, so in the beginning it was, since I wasn't super skinny, and, and I mean, I wasn't because there were girls that were 70 pounds, 65 pounds. They officially got the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa, right? Mine was EDNOS, which is eating disorder, not otherwise specified because I didn't quite meet the criteria for anorexia. And so that's what I got. But then I developed bulimia nervosa, which is the binging and purging Uh, It became first I would just, you know, I would eat something and throw up occasionally. Then it got to the point where I was throwing up everything. And then it got worse because my body was my brain was like, you need to eat. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And I would try to restrict. And it got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore And so I would eat, but then I wouldn't stop. And I would just eat and eat and eat and eat ridiculous amounts of food, just anything I could get my hands on. And then you just feel so much disgust and hatred for yourself. You just feel completely repulsive. And so then, of course, you have to purge. 
So not going into a lot of detail about that. That's as much as you need to know. And uh, it just got to the point where it consumed me. And in the beginning, you do have control. And that's the thing is you need control. For whatever reason you're experiencing an eating disorder going through it, there's usually a need for control because everything in your life is spiraling out of control and you don't know how to stop it. But this is the one thing that, like I said in the beginning, you can control. You control what you consume, what comes out of your body. Nobody can do that for you. It's all you. But it ends up controlling you. And I don't care what anyone says. Even people that are living with an eating disorder, which that became a big thing online. There were entire online communities and websites that were pro-Anna and pro-Mia, which is pro-anorexia and pro-bulimia. And I'll get into that in a little bit. Though that opened up so much. Like the, the internet has done so much da- so much damage for girls with eating disorders and boys with eating disorders. And it was already a problem and it became an even bigger one. So the internet can be used for good, but there are so many evil things and it's sad. But anyway, I had friends that I found out later had eating disorders and I actually lost my friend Julie when she was only 20 years old. She had a massive heart attack and died and that shouldn't happen to anyone in their 20s. She was actually getting better. She was a heavy drinker, a heavy smoker. She was binging and purging all the time and um but she was she was overweight as well. And that put some stress on her heart. Everything that she did put stress on her heart. Plus, since she was a heavy smoker, she should not have been on birth control pills. You're not supposed to smoke cigarettes when you're on birth control pills uh, in particular. And she ended up having a massive heart attack. She had a blood clot in her leg that was undetected. And then when she had this heart attack, everything just started going haywire in her body, right? So she had a blood clot that cut off circulation in her leg. She ended up going into a coma when she had this heart attack and she had to have her leg amputated, the one she had the clot in. Her kidneys shut down. Everything just started failing and then they lost her. We lost her. And the worst part about it was before all this happened, her and I were roommates and we were great friends, but roommates, we were not compatible. We were always arguing and... The last few encounters I had with her were entirely negative and we were fighting and I just wish that it didn't go that way, that that wasn't our last experience together. But um, she knew I loved her. She was one of my best friends in the whole world. It just, you can't always live with people. Just because you're close doesn't mean you you can live together. So when that happened, you would think that that would have stopped my behavior. And it actually did for a little while because I thought I don't want to end up like that. Uh, And I actually wanted to get better. I did have a point in time where I wanted to get better and I, I did for a while. Then maybe, I don't know, in my late 20s or actually mid 20s, I remember, I... I guess I was about 157 pounds, which I'm 5'4", so it's not huge, but for me, that was a lot. I had gained weight. I was just 
getting older, not old, but my metabolism was starting to slow down. Plus my metabolism was messed up from all those years of abuse that I inflicted on myself. Right. So I decided on one New Year's Eve that I was going to make a resolution like everybody does. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to be healthy. And I told people at work and they were like, good for you and cheering me on. And at first it started out slow. The weight was coming off slow and I was actually doing it the right way. I was going out during lunch. We had um, like a track around a duck pond behind the building I worked in and people always went out there to go for runs or to walk. And so it was a nice quiet place. So I would go out there and walk during lunch and we had a cafeteria in the building and I would get like a salad and some yogurt or some fruit and drink water and or diet Pepsi because that's my weakness always still to this day, even though diet soda is bad for you, I cannot seem to give it up and hopefully I will one day. (laughs) But anyway, I used to do that. And then the weight started coming off. I started feeling really good. People were noticing, which made me feel even better. And I remember getting on the scale. It had been about three weeks and I had gone from 157 to 140. And I was like, what? Like it was coming off pretty fast. And I was just amazed and people were telling me how good I looked and I thought, okay, well, you know, I want to get down to like 130. That's reasonable. It's, it's thin, but it's not so thin that I I look sick and it's still healthy. So I did get down to 130, but then I kept going and started cutting back little by little on my food and got down to 120. And then eventually I got down to 110 And people started worrying about me because they weren't seeing me eat lunch anymore. And at that point I was eating, but I would go down to the cafeteria and get a salad, but it was a tiny one, like not even like a large, think of a large, large coffee mug, right? Like you could fill that with lettuce, put maybe some tomatoes on there, some fat-free cheese, and then fat-free ranch or whatever, Italian, fat-free Italian. And that's what I was eating for lunch. It was nothing. In the morning, I would probably have a banana. And then for dinner, I would have like a small thing of yogurt, uh, fat-free yogurt. And that's not even, if I think about the calories now, so maybe let's say lunch was maybe like 150 calories. The banana, I'm not entirely sure, but let's go up a little, say 100, 110 calories. And then maybe the yogurt was about, the yogurt was actually only 90 calories. So think about that. I'm not even eating 500 calories a day and a starvation diet is 900. And so it was bad. The weight was coming off super fast though. And I just fell back into my old habits. I couldn't stop. And I got down to 103 And I remember someone complimenting me at work and I said something like, I haven't been this small since high school. And one of the girls I worked with that was noticing what was going on, she was really worried about me. She said something like, that's not a good thing. And I got pissed off at her and I would turn around and I was like, are you jealous? And I snapped at her and I felt like such a jerk for that because she was overweight and she was trying to lose weight, but she was actually doing it the right way. And so she, she was concerned, but I took it as her being a bitch to me and she wasn't. So I talked to her later and I apologized and 
I remember we had treadmills at work because I did work for a group of cardiologists. So I would get there early in the morning, sometimes before work, and I'd get on the treadmill and just run my butt off until I felt like I was going to pass out. And I started taking diet pills. I started taking these things called stackers, which is like aspirin, caffeine, and ephedra. Ephedra is a Chinese herb that's banned in a lot of places. I think it's, I I don't know if you can get it in Canada anymore, but I know you could for a while. It's banned in the U.S. And I I think it's still banned in the U.S. from what I, I remember seeing. But because people were taking more than the recommended amount and they were dying. They were having heart attacks and dying. And even if you're sensitive to stuff like that, even if you do take the recommended amount or you take a little less, you can still die. It's it's not good stuff, especially when you mix it in with aspirin and caffeine, which is really supposed to boost your metabolism. Um, so I was taking you could take up to three a day, right? One morning, one afternoon, one at night. I would it's not recommended to take it at night, though, because it does really boost you. Like I remember the first time I took it, I took one in the morning and I didn't sleep and I didn't want to eat until like the next day in the middle of the day. I had no appetite. And that was kind of cool because I was like, I only need one. So I would take one and that would last me the whole day. And I would eat a little bit here and there, snack a little just to keep myself going. But then I was taking three a day because, you know, obviously I developed tolerance. But then I was taking two, three times a day. So that's double the recommended amount, which is scary. I could have really done some damage. I could have died. I did start having palpitations and I remember having EKG done at work and I was having an irregular heartbeat and I was very dizzy all the time. They checked my blood pressure and the girl that checked my blood pressure had to change out the cuff and use a children's cuff. And I remember smiling and thinking that was so cool. And she looked at me in horror. She was like, you think that's cool? And I just, I got quiet and I was embarrassed because I was, people were finding out, they were seeing what was going on. People knew, people were talking about me. I heard things and they were worried, but they were kind of, some people had the attitude of, I didn't care about myself. And so they kind of gave up. Some people gave up on me. And I know it gets frustrating when you're dealing with someone that's just self-destructing and they don't care. And I didn't care when I was going through this. I really didn't care. I had moments where I was like, Oh, I don't want to die. And I would think about my friend Julie, but then I was like, whatever, you know, I look good and people are just jealous. I would convince myself of that. Right. So, Plus the guy I was with at the time, he kept telling me how good I looked. And he said, to be honest, when you weighed more, I wasn't attracted to you. And that part of me was like, wow, what a jerk. But then part of me was like, glad. I don't know. I, but then I was terrified of gaining weight because then I thought he wouldn't like me anymore. So it was just really, it was a bad time in my life. Um, I wasn't purging at that point, but then in my, I think I was in my late twenties, very early thirties, I kind of relapsed again because I did get better. I gained some weight back, but then I don't know. I, I tried to eat healthy again and drop some weight, but I never could do it the right way. I would always go overboard. And then I lost the ability to like starve myself. I couldn't do it. I didn't have enough willpower. So then I started the purging again and 
this relationship I was in, he tried to really help me, but I, again, I just didn't have any, I didn't care. I didn't care about myself. Uh, and that relationship ultimately failed, not because of the eating disorder, but it did put a lot, a big strain on it. And I found somebody, a therapist finally that helped me. She, I don't know. I can't really explain why she snapped me out of it or she had the right tools to help me deal with it. She asked the right questions and, you know, ultimately you kind of end up helping yourself when you're in therapy because they kind of lead you, right? They ask leading questions and you kind of figure some things out for yourself, but there were things I needed help with and I like, I couldn't have done it by myself. There's just no way. And I have not relapsed since then. I'm 43 and I have a baby boy. I'm married and, um, you know, married life and having a child comes with its own set of challenges that would be completely, that would be so much worse if I was hurting myself still. I mean, I don't have the time for it because you know what? Eating disorders take all of your time. They take all of your time. I remember going to the grocery store and I would be there for two hours because I'm reading every label. I would take something off the shelf, read the label, put it back and repeat, right? I'd be there for two hours and I would leave with barely anything and it was just all consuming and I don't, I don't have time for it and I don't want to die. Obviously I, I want to be healthy. I've recently started losing weight again um, the baby weight, like I said, but I'm not starving myself this time. I am actually, I don't feel very hungry though. I think because of the medication I'm taking, I think I mentioned that before, but I make a point to eat and I'm not eating that much, but when I do eat, it's not just a tiny salad or a banana, right? And the weight's not coming off like crazy. And I'm not going to get back into that pattern because I have, too many good things to live for. And I actually care more about myself now, or I'm trying really hard to, to love myself. I still have things to deal with, but I'm, I'm getting there and I'm in a much better place now. So I'm not even really, I'm not worried about relapsing at all. And I can talk about it without thinking, without romanticizing it, because it used to be like that. It was like, I don't know. I would think about purging or think about restricting and you get kind of a high off of it. It's like being addicted to to drugs or alcohol, anything. It's an addiction. And, you know, it's just something you have to have treatment for. Now, I'm not saying nobody's ever gotten over an eating disorder on their own, but I can't imagine how extremely hard that is because I could not completely squash this without help. I couldn't. So I'm going to go over some statistics and there's all kinds of statistics out there. This is from two, uh, 2021 and it's something I found on singlecare.com and I'm just going to go over a few things here. This is these are US statistics by the way. There's all kinds of different ones, but basically you've got like I said anorexia nervosa and that I'm just going to read off of here. I mean most people know what it is, but it says it's characterized by weight loss or maintenance by extreme dieting, starvation, or too much exercise. So that's what I was doing in the beginning. Binge eating, um, that's a whole nother set of problems, but that usually comes hand in hand with bulimia. Uh, It means to frequently consume an unusually large amount of food in one setting, 
are sitting, sorry, bulimia nervosa is um, the symptoms include purging, taking laxatives, exercising or fasting to avoid weight gain after binge eating. I do want to say that I did probably go through most of that. I did take laxatives. I purged. I exercised. And sometimes I did fast for like days at a time. Um, And then, you know, of course, after that, after all of the, you put a lot of strain on your heart. You put a lot of, you mess up your metabolism. And that's probably why I struggle with my weight to this day, because you just, your body doesn't function the way it normally is supposed to. But um, binge eating is another thing that can just be a standalone disorder because you do, you think about people starving themselves and being too skinny, but there are people that are go to overeaters anonymous because they're binge eaters. And that's, I haven't really, I, I I've never really dealt with that. And I know that that's probably just as hard to get over. I mean, you see all these, I feel like they're exploitative, but all these TV shows, uh, people are 600 pounds, a thousand pounds, and they end up having, to, they have to lose weight before they have the weight loss surgery. But I don't know. I just feel like I'm on the other end. There's a spectrum. I don't think I would ever go on the other end and go up to a thousand pounds because I can't imagine how that happens. But, but it does happen to people. And so, you know, I just, I didn't go that way. I went the other way, which is equally as unhealthy. You know, you have to find a good middle ground you need to be healthy you need to do the right amount of exercise eat the right amount of food it's all about balance so anyway let me go back to this um basically when people are experiencing eating disorders so people are depressed or anxious they have some kind of uh mental disorder going on they usually go hand in hand very rarely will you have an eating disorder and not have anxiety or depression and like I said you know you can turn to control uh and restricting food intake because it kind of you know it helps you feel like you have control even though you don't um becoming addicted to binging and purging is always a symptom of an underlying feeling that you're living with it's usually some unresolved feeling related to self-esteem lack of worth or repressed trauma So that makes a lot of sense. And I think most people that have gone through eating disorders that have lived through them, they understand that, that there's always an underlying issue. You don't just wake up one day and go, hey, I'm going to starve myself or I'm going to throw up after I eat. That doesn't just, that's not normal. Um, So people turn to uh, the attempt at controlling food intake or eating their emotions instead of dealing with the underlying problem, right? If you go, if it goes untreated and these are some statistics now, I keep saying I'm going to get to them. I will now how common are eating disorders. Uh, it's shocking. Approximately 30 million Americans live with an eating disorder. And that's coming from the national association of anorexia nervosa, nervosa and associated disorders. Uh, eating disorders are the third most common chronic illness among adolescent females in the U.S. Now, I said t- that men go through it also, right? So 10 million men in the U.S. will suffer from an eating disorder in their lifetime. Uh, the lifetime prevalence of eating disorders is highest among those with a binge eating disorder, 5.5% compared to 2% for bulimia and 1.2% for anorexia. 
they also, okay, here we go. There's some statistics, some worldwide statistics. Global eating disorder prevalence increased from 3.4% to 7.8% between 2000 and 2018. That's a pretty, that's a pretty significant jump. Um, 70 million people internationally live with eating disorders. Japan has the highest prevalence of eating disorders in Asia, followed by Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, and South Korea. Austria had the highest rate of prevalence in Europe at 1.55% as of 2012, and almost half of all Americans know someone with an eating disorder. Um, Here are statistics by sex. Eating disorders were more prevalent among young women, which is 3.8%, than men. Uh, at just uh, 1.5% in the U.S. as of 2001 to 2004. So that's not as current. That might have increased. Hopefully not. A quarter of those with anorexia are male. Men have an increased risk of dying because they are diagnosed much later than women. That makes sense. You don't really think of men when you think of eating disorders and people need, and same with sexual abuse, people tend to think of women. Uh, this could be in part due to the misconception that men do not experience eating disorders. Like I said, people think that women are the only ones that really dwell on imperfections with their bodies, but that's not so. Men do it too, and at a much higher rate than you would think. Um, eating disorder statistics by age. So globally, 13% of women older than 50 experience a disordered eating behaviors. And uh, the median age of eating disorder onset was 21 years old for binge eating disorder and 18 years old for anorexia and bulimia. So a lifetime prevalence of eating disorders in the U.S. was 2.7% among adolescents as of 2001 to 2004. And of adolescents with eating disorders, the 17 to 18 year old age group had the highest prevalence. Let's see here. Researchers followed a group of 496 adolescent girls in a U.S. city over a span of eight years and found by the age of 20, more than 5% of the girls met the criteria for anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder. And then more than 13% of the girls had experienced an eating disorder uh, when including nonspecific eating disorder symptoms. That's a lot. And unfortunately... People aren't getting the support they need because it's such a shameful thing for people. And because a lot of people, like I said, they feel like they're living with an eating disorder. And that to me is just ridiculous. And uh, I'll get into the whole thing about some of the websites that I came across when I kind of relapsed in my early 20s when I thought I was going to lose weight the right way. I kind of went online because I saw there was some talk show. They were talking about pro-ana sites, pro-anorexia sites. They called it pro-ana. And these girls were just getting so much support because there were forums on here. There's tips, tricks, different things, um, meal plans. So you, they, they tell you, you know, make sure you chew gum all the time. So you don't feel hungry. Make sure you drink really cold water because if you shiver or take cold showers your your body burns calories by shivering um make sure you eat on a, a small dark colored plate because you'll feel less hungry uh only eat you know half of what's on your plate don't ever eat all of it there's so many things and you start following all these guidelines and you get addicted to it 
and it's so sad. And then you start talking to girls that are going through the same thing and you're supporting each other through it. You know, you it's like having a sponsor for AA, but it's like the worst thing ever because you're not trying to get better. You're encouraging each other. You're like going down this path of self, self-destruction and you're dying and you're supporting each other. And I'm just, I'm, I'm still in disbelief. Now they did take down a lot of these websites and I know that there's still some of them up. I haven't looked, but they find clever ways to put this information out online. And now we have so much with social media. I didn't have social media when I was growing up. Right. But with Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, there's so many, I'm sure groups popping up where people are still supporting each other through this and sharing images of, you know, celebrities, models, whatever, sharing their own images of their uh, tracking their weight loss. And they call it thin inspiration is what they call it. And it's just mind blowing. I can't believe that I fell into all of that on top of, I mean, cause a lot of these people that I talked to were young girls and I was in my twenties. I wasn't old, but they were all pretty much younger than me and I should have known better, but I, I wasn't well. And I'm so much, I'm so happy that I'm so much better now that I'm, I'm, I, I consider myself cured. Now they say, if you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. If you're a drug addict, you're always a drug addict. And I don't know if, I guess the same can be said for eating disorders, but in my mind, I firmly believe that I won't ever go down that path again. Uh, There's some binge eating disorder statistics because we can't forget that that is also an eating disorder. It's not just about starving. It's not just about purging. Uh, Binge eating disorders characterized by frequent episodes of consuming unusually large amounts of food in a short period of time. A person with binge eating disorder often feels binge eating is outside of his or her control and may feel shame because of it. Binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder in the U.S. Not surprising because so many people are obese and that's horrible, obviously. Uh, Nearly 3% of adults experience, experience, I promise I can talk, experience binge eating disorder in their lifetime. American women... 3.5% and men, 2% experience a binge eating disorder during their lifetime, making binge eating disorder three times more common than anorexia and bulimia combined. And then less than half, 43%, uh, 43.6% of people with binge eating disorder will receive treatment. It's not enough. Less than half. It's definitely not enough. There are so many resources now. There are so many treatment programs really good ones, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, there's meetings everywhere. So I really hope that if you're going through this, you take advantage of that because there's all kinds of help out there more than ever now. Um, Some of the, the impact of eating disorders, and you don't think about this when you're sick, about one person dies every hour as a direct result of an eating disorder. Eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. Anorexia is the most deadly mental illness. One study found that people with anorexia are 56 times more likely to commit suicide than people without an eating disorder. That's huge. Up to half of the people with an eating disorder misused alcohol or illicit drugs at a rate five times higher than the general population. The vast majority, 97%, of people hospitalized for an eating disorder have a co-occurring health condition like mood disorders, major depression, 
And major depression and mood disorders are the primary underlying condition followed by anxiety disorders such as uh, OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and substance use. Diabetes patients who have an eating disorder struggle with controlling their diabetes, which exposes them to diabetic complications such as heart disease, stroke, neuropathy, loss of vision, and kidney disease. It's so serious, and I really cannot stress that enough. There's no reason to destroy yourself over trauma that you've been through. That's enough, right? The abuse, you've already had enough happen to you, and why let the people that hurt you um, or the events that shaped who you are right now, don't, don't let that make who you are right now. Don't let anyone win. This is your life. This is your body. And you need to take care of yourself. Nobody or no situation is worth killing yourself over. Um, Like I said, there's lots of ways to treat eating disorders. Uh, There's various models of treatment for eating disorders, right? So there's residential programs, hospital programs, day treatment. And for the majority of people who have eating disorders, uh, they're usually perfectionistic types. Not always. But they usually do well with a mix of psychotherapy sessions with a nutritionist and then sometimes psychopharmacology, so drugs. Uh, with eating disorder treatment, 60% of patients make a full recovery, and that's very, very encouraging. However, only 1 in 10 people with an eating disorder will seek and receive treatment. So it's a matter of recognizing you have a problem and that you don't have control and you need help. That's the most important thing. That's the most that that's the first step towards getting better and making sure that you live a long, relatively healthy life. Some people don't have any damage to, to any of their vital organs. Some people fully recover and they're fine, but that's not always the case, especially with, with really severe anorexia. And there's lots of resources. Like I said, um, I'm going to kind of shift gears here now. It's abuse of another form. It's not self-abuse. It's kind of hard to talk about for, not for me. I've dealt with the things I've gone through. But like I said, a lot of people, it's hard for them to hear. And if you haven't dealt with it, definitely maybe consider not listening at this point. But as a mom, child abuse has always seemed like a horrible thing. In any form, right? But as a mom, now it just seems so much worse. And I didn't fully understand the fear and the disgust that parents feel up towards it um, until I became a parent. If I think about someone hurting my child now, oh my gosh, I can't even... I, I would obviously... I don't want to go to jail, <laughs> but the first thing you think is someone hurts their, your kid. You want to kill them, right? But you obviously, then what happens, right? Then you don't, you, you won't be with your child anymore. But um, so many kids are suffering from this and it's not just abuse, right? It's not just like physical. You think of people, kids being beaten, kids being sexually molested, but it's also neglect, you know, sometimes the worst thing, sometimes the worst thing you can do is to just ignore your child. 
Um, sometimes that hurts just as much as words hurt. It hurts just as much as hitting hurts. Um, so neglect is also a serious problem. And, and I was reading that a report of child abuse is made every 10 seconds in the United States. I'm going to go over some statistics in the U S and in Canada. I don't really have, I mean, I can't go country by country. I don't have enough time, but it's just kind of a general idea of what's going on in North America. Uh, and it says that every year, more than 4 million referrals are made to child protection agencies involving more than 4.3 million children, right? A single referral can include multiple children. This is in the U.S. Let me repeat that. The United States has one of the worst records among industrialized nations, losing on average five children every day to child abuse and neglect. And then in 2019 alone, state agencies found over 656,000 victims of child maltreatment. And that's only part of the story, right? But that would pack 10 modern football stadiums. Some of the health impacts of child abuse, and this was reported by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, they link adverse childhood experiences with a range of long-term health impacts. Uh, individuals who reported six or more adverse childhood experiences had an average life expectancy two decades shorter than those who reported none. That's a lot. Uh, ischemic, ischemic heart disease, otherwise known as IHD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is COPD, liver disease, and other health-related quality of life issues are tied to child abuse. Now, this is stuff I didn't even know. And it's very interesting to read this. And I hope that this kind of, you know, that you can take some bits away from this and kind of, you know, I hope I'm educating you a little bit is what I'm trying to say. Uh, in one study, 80% of 21-year-olds who reported childhood abuse met the criteria for at least one psychological disorder. And that's not surprising. Obviously, if you've gone through abuse, you're going to have some some issues with your mental health. Um, so mental health disorders, addictions, and related issues, some of those are risk for intimate partner violence, right? You continue the cycle, uh, you either become the abuser or you continue you continue being the victim. And that can go on your whole life if you don't seek help. Um, alcoholism and alcohol abuse, illicit drug abuse, smoking and drinking at an early age, depression and suicide attempts, sexual and reproductive health issues and risk factors. So some of those are multiple sexual partners. Sexually transmitted diseases, unintended pregnancies, early initiation of sexual activity, adolescent pregnancy, and fetal death. Now, those in particular, when there's sexual abuse, it's because your whole idea of what is normal is completely skewed, right? So you just have completely unhealthy um, uh, abuses, I mean, not abuses, um, habits, <laughs> I don't know. I was trying, trying to go there. You have completely unhealthy habits. You have a completely skewed view of what is normal when it comes to, to a normal sexual relationship and um, your own sexuality. So that's really hard because it affects everything. It impacts everything. It impacts your mental health, your physical health, your sexual and reproductive health. Um, you, you know, you have girls that are, I worked at Planned Parenthood and I had a girl come in that was 14, I believe. And she took a pregnancy test and it wasn't uncommon to see young girls come in for pregnancy tests. 
she had a complete breakdown when she uh, saw that it was positive when we told her it was positive, which is not abnormal. But then she asked to speak with one of the nurse practitioners and turns out that she was being sexually abused by her father. And that's the reason why she was pregnant. So that's another thing is um, people just don't think about that. Right. They don't think for some reason when uh, with rape and molestation, they don't think about unintended pregnancies, which I don't understand because obviously it's sexual activity and a baby can come from that. So it doesn't have to be consensual for you to get pregnant. Um, I remember there was, I think it was a U.S. Senator and I cannot for the life of me remember his name now. He actually said that women would not get pregnant if it was truly rape because their body would shut it down. Like their uterus would be like, no, right. That doesn't make any sense to me. So basically he's saying, if you get pregnant, you probably enjoyed it and you didn't really think it was rape and go look that up. Cause that is 100% true. He said that. And I, I'm sure if you Google it, a simple Google search, you'll find out his name and all that. And I'm going to look that up later. Um, I want to go over there's some financial impacts of child abuse, uh, long term financial impact of abuse and neglect is really like it's a problem. It's staggering. So this is just so for cases in 2015 alone, the estimated lifetime cost of lost worker pro- productivity, healthcare costs, special education costs, child welfare expenditures and criminal justice expenditures is over eight hundred and thirty thousand per victim. That's per victim. Right. The estimated U.S. economic burden of child maltreatment based on 2015 investigated incident cases uh, was two trillion dollars. That's two million three hundred sixty eight thousand non fatal and one thousand six hundred seventy fatal victims. Two trillion dollars. It says this could fund a college education for 70 percent of children in the U.S. It could send one point seven million children to college. That's just insane. That's just insane. And, you know, this is in 2015. I don't have the numbers for 2021, but I'm assuming it's probably not that much different. I'd like to see that the numbers went down. I just don't have much hope because this is such a a widespread problem. Child abuse fatalities. Um, Here's what we need to do, right? This is what I was wanting to say earlier. We have to recognize early signs of abuse to save children, right? Apparently, uh, five children die every day from child abuse and neglect. Five. And obviously, that's five too many, right? Um, In 2019, state agencies identified an estimated 1,840 children who died as a result of abuse and neglect, an average of five children a day. Um, studies also indicate significant undercounting of child maltreatment fatalities by some state agencies by 50% or more. And that's roughly 25% of your child's elementary school class. That's sad. Um, more than 70% of the children who died as a result of child abuse or neglect were three years of age or younger. And around 80% of child maltreatment fatalities involved at least one parent as perpetrator. Um, unfortunately with sexual abuse, physical abuse, child neglect, it's usual or emotional abuse. I want to point that out too. Um, that's still abuse. Most of the time it's a parent, it's a family member. doesn't have to be an immediate family member. It's usually someone that they know. It could be a friend, um, a family friend, 
Unfortunately, it's usually someone that the child's familiar with, someone that the child has regular close contact with. Um, Substance abuse and child maltreatment are tragically and undeniably linked. In a study of 513 children exposed to drugs while in utero, rates of abuse were two to three times that of other children in the same geographical area. As many as two-thirds of the people in treatment for drug abuse reported being abused or neglected as children. That's not surprising either. Um, 14% of all men in prison and 36% of women in prison in the USA were abused as children, which is about twice the frequency seen in the general population. Children who experience child abuse and neglect are about nine times more likely to become involved in criminal activity. They're also more likely to become, like I said, an abuser and to keep that vicious cycle going. Luckily, the things I experienced showed me that I did not want to be like my father. I did not want to be that kind of person. I didn't want, I don't want to hurt anyone. So the thought of hurting my child makes me sick. I can't imagine it. And I'm so glad I went the other way because I couldn't live with myself. I just couldn't. And I probably, I wouldn't have had my son to be honest because I wouldn't want to continue that cycle. I think I put off having kids for so long because I was just, not that I thought that I would be like my dad. I just didn't know what to expect. I was scared. I didn't know how I would feel. I wasn't sure, to be honest, how, what kind of connection I would feel because I was so afraid. But when I had my son, it was like, I fell in love with him instantly and I've never, I love my husband, (laughs) but my son, I've never loved anyone so intensely and like immediately. Right. I just, he's, he's my world. And the thought of him being hurt is just, I can't, I can't even fathom it. Right. Um, so I know he's safe with me. He's safe with my husband. He's safe with our immediate family. As far as we know, right? But I just, and luckily my dad has not been in the picture since I was 14. So there's never any chance that he would be around my father (laughs) ever. Um, And if anyone ever hit my son, oh, they're in trouble. But, you know, you just, they can't be with you all the time. Luckily right now he's so little that he is with me all the time. But eventually your children go out in the world. They venture out there away from you. And you have to trust that if anybody hurts them, they will come to you and they will confide in you and do it immediately, not 20 years later, 30 years later, like I did, um, because they're ashamed. So I think it's something you have to discuss with them. You have to be very open, very frank about it. And you can share your personal experiences depending on their age if you want to, or just give them general information and just let them know, look, if someone touches you the wrong way, if someone hurts you in any way, please, it has to be reported because it has to stop. The person that's doing the abusing has to be stopped because they will always hurt someone else. Um, It's not like you have someone that molests one child or beats one child. That's not how it works. And somebody will always suffer if someone doesn't, if, if you don't speak up, that person will never stop and they will go on to hurt countless children or adults, right? It doesn't stop there. So my father, unfortunately, I'm not the only daughter that he has. I don't know. I don't have any contact with the other girls, so I don't know 
what they went through. Maybe they didn't go through anything, but I doubt that that's the case. And I do wish that I had said something when it was happening, but I was so afraid. And I think the the last time that he did anything, he came into my room and he was mad about something. I can't even tell you what it was now, but he went to hit me and I grabbed his hand, one of his hands. I think it was his left hand. And when I did that, I thought, oh, what did I just do? I was like, I'm in trouble. Then he went to hit me with his other hand and grabbed it. So now I'm holding both of his hands and I'm like, what are you doing? I'm talking to myself in, in my mind. I'm like, what are you doing? If you let go, you're dead. Like I thought he was, I didn't know what he was going to do. He pulled his hands away from me and he left the room and he never did anything again. I, I don't know why it stopped after that. I don't know if he thought, okay, she's defending herself. So now she's likely to talk. I don't know what that might've been, what his thought process was. All I know is it stopped after that, but the damage was done. The damage was done years before that. And unfortunately I, you can't blame your father or your mother or whatever for every mistake that you've made. But I do know that that's why I developed an eating disorder. I do know for a fact that's why I experimented with so many drugs. Luckily, I didn't. I drank when I was young, but it was never a problem. Like I didn't do any binge drinking. I don't even drink now. Maybe I have one drink, maybe like twice a year. I don't drink. Um, so luckily, I never had a problem with alcohol because, oh, I can't. I've I've known some alcoholics, and that is rough. That is rough. Um, I did experiment with some drugs when I was younger but again like I never had a huge problem I was able to just stop right so luckily I never had any trouble with the law I didn't get arrested the only thing I ever had was a speeding ticket a couple speeding tickets that's it um I was very very lucky that I didn't cause uh any severe problems for myself that would have hindered my ability to come to Canada if you have a DUI they don't want you here and so I wouldn't be with my husband. I wouldn't have my son. Um, I might have had another kid someday, but like, who knows? But I wouldn't have the one I have now. So I'm very lucky and very, very happy that I didn't completely ruin my life so that I couldn't come here to Canada. Um, I do have some sexual assault statistics in Canada. Now these are not just limited to children and that's important because everybody goes through sexual abuse. So I just kind of want to go through these a little bit. Um, so this is, it says a numerical representation of the truth of every 100 incidents of sexual assault. Only six are reported to the police. Um, one to 2% of date rape sexual assaults are reported to the police. One in four North American women will be sexually assaulted during their lifetime. 11% of women have physical injury resulting from sexual assault. Only two to 4% of all sexual assaults reported are false reports. So more often than not, it's true. They're not just false allegations. 60% of sexual abuse or assault victims are under the age of 17. That's, that's a huge number of children. So that's really, really upsetting. Over 80% of sex crime victims are women. 80% of sexual assault incidents occur in the home, which we already knew. 
17% of girls under 16 have experienced some form of incest. And 83% of disabled women will be sexual assault, sexually assaulted during their lifetime. 15% of sexual assault victims are boys under 16. Half of all sexual offenders are married or in long-term relationships. And I think that's something that people, they think if you're married, that there's nothing wrong with you, which is definitely not the case. Uh, there have been some complete psychopaths that have been in relationships. Ted Bundy, anyone? Um, let's see. Uh, I'm not trying to make jokes here, but really think about that. There are so many people that are in relationships that are the most horrific people on the face of the earth. Um, half of all sexual offenders. Okay. I already said that one. Anyway, 50%, 57% of all Aboriginal women have been sexually abused. One fifth of all sexual assaults involve a weapon of some form. 80% of assailants are friends and family of the victim, which I said before, it's usually someone that you're close to. Um, it says the above statistics have been taken from various studies across Canada. While the numbers can never be 100% accurate, a few key generalizations can be made, such as sexual assault is far more common than most would su suspect. And that's true. Relatively few incidents of sexual assault are reported to the police Young and otherwise vulnerable women are most likely to be sexually abused and most sexual assaults are committed by someone close to the victim, not a stranger. Again, re reiterating that point that it's usually someone that you're close to. So, you know, people have so much fear when they're out by themselves that they're going to be attacked, which is very real. You should never male or female. Don't be out by yourself somewhere late at night. I know it could happen in broad daylight, but don't be out by yourself somewhere, uh, just uh, anywhere, really. It can happen anywhere. It can happen in a park. It can happen in the middle of downtown. It can happen uh, in your neighborhood. It doesn't matter. You know, under the cover of darkness, lots of bad things can happen. But like I said, sometimes things happen in broad daylight. Kids get snatched in broad daylight um, with people watching, people everywhere. So it's not always when you're just by yourself, you know, and you don't, be under the impression or the illusion that, you know, a crowd makes you safer because there have been people that have been raped in the middle of crowds during Mardi Gras, during uh, New Year's Eve celebrations. I mean, it happens all the time. Halloween, people think they're surrounded by people. So surely they're not going to get attacked. They're not going to be dragged from a crowd into a, an alley and raped. And that happens all the time. And so just always be aware of your surroundings. And definitely if you have kids and you leave the house with your kids, which most people do, even during COVID, you have to always know where they are. I'm not saying you have to put a leash on them. Some people do. I've seen that. To me, that's kind of a good idea for little ones. But anyway, if you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. It's not as bad as it sounds. Um, pay attention to your kids. Don't, when I'm at home, I have to pay attention to my son a lot more now because he's mobile. Before, I could put him down in one spot and he wouldn't move because he wasn't rolling around yet. He wasn't crawling. Now, I have to be aware of what he's doing all the time. If I have him contained, if he's in his play yard, if he's in his high chair or he's in his bouncer, um, then I can check my email, do whatever, and not worry. 
But if you are out in the world with your kids, don't be looking at Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Don't don't take your attention away from your kids unless you're in a location where it's secure because they can get snatched up right in like in a second. It only takes a second. You hear so many times people go, I turn my back for one second. And it's true. So many things can happen in one second. So many horrible things. So just please when I'm out in public with my son, I am looking at everyone. I'm sure I've probably eyeballed a lot of people and made them think that <laughs> I've given them the evil eye, but it's just, I, I, I think unconsciously I'm kind of putting it out there. Like I'm a mom. Do not mess with me. Don't mess with my kid. There will be hell to pay, but just be aware. You have to, you can't be chill and lax. And when you're with your kids, because unless you're at home, kind of, because you don't want to experience the pain of having your child snatched from you. I luckily don't know what that's like. Far too many people do know. I hope I never experienced that. I hope none of you ever experienced that because with all the stuff that's going on with trafficking, it's just, it's terrifying. And, you know, unfortunately, most kids that are taken, if two or three days go by, a week goes by, uh, the likelihood of you seeing your kid ever alive again is very slim. And that's just another, that's a whole another scary can of worms open. But, um, so I did go through a lot of these things as a child. I do have depression. I do have anxiety. I am taking medication for it. Uh, I had even more depression after I had my son postpartum depression uh, I haven't been on medication my whole life. It's been periodically here and there. I've been on it. Then I kind of felt I didn't need that. I didn't have a need for it. So I wouldn't take it anymore, which I don't recommend if you're going to stop an antidepressant or something for anxiety, depending on what you're taking. Well, actually anything you're taking, talk to your doctor first. I would be like, I don't need this. And I'd stop taking it. Luckily, I didn't have any bad side effects. I didn't have any weird withdrawal symptoms, but you can, you can have some serious withdrawal symptoms like seizures, and depending on what you're taking, it could even result in death depending on what goes on. So just please, before you discontinue any medication, talk to your doctor. Don't be like me. I got lucky. You may not get lucky like I did. But um, I am not really in therapy right now. I have talked to a couple of therapists on the phone. I did you know, a phone appointment. But for me, it's kind of hard to really feel a connection unless I'm in person. So I am currently, uh, at, I'm not actively doing it, but I plan on this week, I'm going to start, um, after the weekend, I'm going to start looking for a regular therapist, someone, I don't want to just talk to different people because sometimes what I'm doing now, if you call and you get an appointment on the phone, you may not talk to the same person. And I'd like to have that relationship where it's the same person every time they know your situation. You don't have to keep explaining everything over again. And, uh, I just think it's, it's better. It's more effective when you have a connection to somebody because you don't always click with a therapist. Sometimes, you have to go through multiple therapists like I did, like a lot of people do before you find somebody that you're really comfortable with and that you feel like they actually care and they want to help you. They understand what you're saying. And then when you have that relationship, that's how you get better. So, you know, medication alone, I used to think was the solution. And for some people it may work, but even if you don't see a therapist, you have to talk to somebody 
even if you just do a podcast and just, you know, spill all spill your guts out into the void and you don't actually talk to a person, if you get it out, if you can verbalize your feelings, your pain, it does something right now in the beginning, it may be too raw and it may hurt, but the more that you do it, the easier, I promise you, the easier it gets. And it could take a long time. It took years for me. It took decades, but you know what? It's worth it because when you let go of that pain, when you start healing and it hurts more in the beginning, like when you have a cut and it starts healing, you know, you have more pain as the healing process begins, but you know what? It gets better. And if you keep working at it, eventually you will have a scar that's barely even noticeable. You have to heal yourself. You cannot be a parent and carry all of that around without your child being affected. And I don't want my son to have a mom that is crying all the time, that's depressed, that's anxious, because I can't give my full attention to him and I can't focus on helping him grow and learn. And kids pick up on everything. I could sit there and I could smile and laugh with him, but he will be able to feel my anxiety. And I don't want that. I don't want him to be an anxious person. He's already seen me cry a few times. He's seen me go through some things and I, but he's still not a year old yet. Even though I know, you know, he can still pick up on things now, but I don't want him to see that anymore. I don't want him to see me be sad. You know, he, kids shouldn't have to comfort their parents is what I'm saying. And I used to comfort my mom. I went to the hospital with my mom when she would get sick because my dad wouldn't go with her. She, I remember going to the hospital with her to the ER. She had a horrible blinding migraine. She drove herself and I went with her because she was so sick. Uh, and it's just, that's not the child's job to take care of the parent when they're, when they're still little like that. I shouldn't have had to take care of my mom. I should have been able to be a child instead of worrying about her. And so no child should have to do that. They need to be kids. They need to be able to play and be carefree because when you become an adult, you don't get to do that as much, right? So you need to enjoy your childhood and every child has a right to that. Um, I don't really have a whole lot else to say that's not going to be redundant at this point. Uh, I do hope that some of this is educational, if not all of it. And if you didn't have any knowledge of eating disorders before this, I think maybe abuse is a more uh, is a topic that people have more experience with, not experience with, but the knowledge of it. Hopefully it's not experience with abuse, um, but eating disorders, I don't know that they're talked about enough. And I just think that if you have a child that this is a takeaway from this, if you have a child that is overweight um and you want them to be healthy first off if they're overweight because of what they're eating that's on you you need to make sure that you are making healthy choices for your child because that's your job as a parent when they get older then it's on them because as an adult I'm responsible for what I put in my body not my mother I'm an adult now when I was little she was responsible for getting me on a path to eat healthy, right? So you need to make responsible choices for your children. I'm not saying they can't ever have a cookie or have a treat once in a while. That's fine. 
but don't make it an everyday thing out of convenience or whatever or given because they're begging because you know what if they don't have bad food to begin with they won't even know what they're missing so don't get in the habit of just you know picking up mcdonald's because you don't feel like cooking even a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at home is better than going and getting them a cheeseburger so just take a few minutes out of your day to slap a sandwich together and they'll be way better off um don't get in the habit of giving them sugary sodas even too much juice is bad lots of sugar and juice and make sure that they're drinking a lot of water unlike me (laughs) um i hate water but i swear i'm trying to force myself to do it uh i didn't grow up drinking a lot of water my mom gave me soda she would buy three liter bottles of pepsi like four at a time and she would let me have it whenever i wanted it and that's terrible And now I can't blame her. I'm drinking diet Pepsi, which doesn't have the calories or the sugar, but there's other things that look up diet sodas. They're so bad for you. Uh, And sometimes they actually hinder weight loss. It didn't happen to me, but you can actually, it can prevent you from losing the weight you want to lose. Water's the best way. Helps flush fat from the system. It's amazing. We're made mostly of water, so you should be drinking it. And, uh, My husband's going to roll his eyes because I am not practicing what I preach. But let me tell you, I'm trying and I will get better at it. Um, Where I was going with this is if your child is overweight, don't shame them. Don't call them names. Don't tell them they're fat. Don't tell them they're ugly. Don't call them lazy. Help them overcome that by getting more active, by eating better. Be their advocate. Be their ally. Don't shame them because it's only going to make it worse it's going to make them hide food they'll start hoarding i i know there are kids that hide food and their sweets and stuff in their room and they eat in privacy because they're ashamed um so help them be healthy uh if they have um if they are eating healthy and they're exercising and they're still overweight, make sure there's not something going on medically because there can always be something going on with their thyroid or in a number of other things. So get them checked out. Make sure they're always, they have physicals, you know, what's going on with their health, help them make healthy choices and just, you know, be there for them. Don't, don't shame them for, for anything, for being too skinny, for being fat. You have to be a responsible parent. You have to help them because they're your kids. They can't make these decisions. They can't go shopping for themselves. They they are not driving themselves to McDonald's. You are. So stop doing it. Um, if you notice that your children are not eating at meals or um, if you're finding food in the trash that they were supposed to be eating, if you notice that they are exercising excessively if they're complaining about their bodies if they are um stashing food in their room if if you hear them vomiting a lot of times when they if you if you if your kid leaves the table and goes to the bathroom and you hear the water running i'm not saying spy on your kids but if you have a feeling something's going on you need to kind of do a little bit of investigating because if you feel like your child's being abused, if you feel like your child is starving themselves or whatever, uh, look into that because you're not going to feel that for no reason, usually, unless you're really paranoid, which I try not to be. Um, but just pay attention. You have to pay attention to your kids. You have to communicate with them. You, you cannot neglect them because they will hide things from you. If they feel like they can't confide in you, 
and it could kill them. So if you notice bruises on your kids, if you notice they become withdrawn, if you ever find any clothing, especially underwear with any blood on it or any, you know, it could be a period. It could be something worse. Just please notice your kid's behavior. If it changes like dramatically, if they become withdrawn and they're usually outgoing, that's a big thing, right? It could just be depression, but it could also be a sign of something more, um, as far as like abuse, sexual, verbal, um, physical, or an eating disorder. There's any number of things, drug use, alcohol abuse. So just like I said, I know I've, I keep saying this over and over, but I can't stress it enough. Notice when they deviate from their normal behavior, their normal patterns, their normal, their normal routines, because usually, especially if it happens suddenly, that's usually a big sign that something is going on. Um, and if you have a very open relationship with your children, if you share information with them before it even becomes a problem, if you share information about abuse, about um, eating disorders or what, whatever you feel like you need, drug use, um, sex, whatever, and you have that open line of communication, they know they can come to you without being judged, without being punished, without being shamed. They will talk to you. They will talk to you. It might not be easy, but they have to know that they can always confide in their parents or else they're going to confide in someone else and they're going to probably get stupid advice. And you don't need that. You don't want your kids going to someone outside of the home that is probably going to wreck everything that you've been working for, working towards to have them be a stable young person. So um, I think that's about it. I know this was really serious, but I really felt like I needed to talk about it because not only does it help me each time I talk about it, but I'm hoping that it's going to help some other people that hear this. And even if you're not directly being affected by the issues I discussed, if you feel like you know someone that is going through it or maybe going through it, feel free to pass along some of this information, some of the statistics, some of the um, patterns of behavior that they should be looking out for. And I really hope that if you have experienced any of the things I've talked about, that you're thriving and that you've had help. And if you haven't, I hope that you can find the courage within yourself um, to confide in a friend, a family member and seek help. If you feel like you can't do it on your own, someone can help you. There are resources everywhere and all it takes is a simple search and there are so many people willing to help you. And I hope that you find the peace and the healing that you deserve. And I hope that everyone is happy. And I hope that if you haven't experienced any of these problems that you never have to and that your children never have to. So everyone have a great weekend. Take care of yourself. Love yourself. Love your family. Love your friends. And try to make the world a better place. I know this sounds so like kumbaya, la la, whatever. I want everyone to be happy and I want them to, uh, to, I want everyone to be themselves and not be ashamed of who they are and to not be hurt and to not hurt others. And just, um, I don't know. I, I don't know where else to go with that except for everybody deserves to be happy regardless of who you are and whether you believe that or not, everyone, all of you deserve to be happy. 
So take care. That's my time. And I will hop on here next weekend. I don't want to promise anything during the week because that usually does not work out. I will try, but for sure, every Saturday I will be here and take care of yourselves.